Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I talked to Dr. Medge Owen about her work in helping to create safe obstetric anesthesia practice worldwide by building systems and partnering with local champions to drive institutional change. I was deeply impressed not only with the amazing work that she and her team have achieved, but also with how well they've been able to quantify their very significant impact all over the world. This has been one of my very favorite interviews so far. You definitely won't want to miss it. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Medge Owen. Medge is a professor of obstetric anesthesia at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, as well as the director of maternal and newborn global health programs at Wake Forest. She's also the founder of Cabelli, which is an organization committed to creating global access to safe and supported childbirth for women all over the world. And I'm really excited to have her here today. Welcome, Medge. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, to start us off, why don't you just share a little bit about the current landscape as it relates to, uh, you know, maternal access to healthcare as they're giving birth, and a little bit of the reason why Cabelli exists. Very well. So I've been uh, practicing obstetric anesthesia for my entire career. Actually, I started out as an OBGYN resident and then switched to anesthesiology, but I've always loved obstetrics. So early in my career, I um, had the opportunity to receive a Fulbright scholarship um, to go and teach obstetric anesthesia in Turkey. And at that time, I was doing a lot of basic science research as well. And so my lab partner was from Turkey. And so I was um, able to go and experience that new culture working in the lab as well as um, in the clinical realm. And it was during that time that I realized childbirth was so different for women in other parts of the world than what we experienced here in the United States. So for example, uh, in Turkey at that time, uh, most women would opt to have a C-section because the provision of pain relief during labor wasn't available. Wow. And women would also go to sleep because they were afraid to have spinal anesthesia performed and also the obstetricians didn't like it. So uh, women then had no uh, recall of one of the most significant moments of their life, the birth of their child, because they were knocked out with general anesthesia. Wow. And so that was the norm. And unfortunately that's still the norm in many parts of the world today. Wow. Yeah, this is something that hits close to home for our family. I, I actually didn't mention this to you before, but we just had the birth of our first child just a few weeks ago, which was awesome. Congratulations. We down the street here at University of Pennsylvania, where we were, awesome. I would say, shout out to our friends at Penn. We were uh, just ridiculously well cared for. Correct. And uh, my wife got an epidural and it went great. And there was a, a little problem, I guess, during the delivery. And it, there was a, a code and a, like 75 people all rushed into the room. And it was it was amazing, like the support and the the sheer like brain power and medical expertise all crowded into a very small space. It was, I felt like we were in really, really great hands and everything went really well. And now Calvin is a, a healthy little guy, which we're really grateful for. As it should be. Yeah. Yes, and and that was just a, such an amazing experience. And I, yeah. I realized, you know, as you're starting to share your story, how uh, unique 
of an experience that is on the on the global stage as it relates to you know what what you saw there in Turkey and and elsewhere. Well, I remember in Turkey when I was just getting into this. It's it's um, you've got to you know you're a completely foreigner in the environment and understand how to build trust with people and how to work through cultural differences and norms and how to be able to make a safety platform that you can build upon. So I remember one day I was in the operating room and I'd finally talked the team into letting me do a spinal for a lady having a C-section and everything was going great. And she looked up at me and I said in Turkish, I was, I didn't even speak Turkish well, but I said, uh, which means I don't know Turkish, but I know anesthesia. Uh. And with that, she just, a big smile came on her face. Everybody in the room uh, started laughing and there was just trust and rapport that was built. And the patient felt, even though she was awake and having this abdominal surgery performed, she could still enjoy that experience and feel comfortable. Wow. That's, uh, that's really incredible. Were there any times, I'm sure, you know, when you're as a Fulbright scholar abroad, there was probably some uh, adjustment culturally. Were there any like problems or issues or <laughs> awkward experiences that you had culturally? Uh, a few things. Yes. <laughs> Again, trying to learn and speak a, a new language sometimes um, comes out the wrong way. And um, you may say something you completely don't <laughs> intend. <laughs> Especially in the medical context, I'm sure. So. But, you know, everybody um, just smiles and you go forward. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how that early experience in Turkey and the time that you spent there grew into, you know, what we now see as an established multinational organization that's marshalling so many people all over the place to, to pull towards this mission. Well, I think um, one of my revelations while I was there, and it was actually my husband's idea to start Kibala, actually. Oh, cool. Um, he he um, is was uh, my lab partner, nice. so the the lab partner that took me to Turkey ended up being my husband. So. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah. So um, even though my Fulbright was in '94, we got married in Turkey in '97. Oh, awesome! So yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah. So talk a little bit about how did how did he kind of broach that topic, and what was it like as you were thinking like maybe this is this is bigger than just the work that we're doing. Right. So as in the early days as it was uh, taking shape, it was just kind of a daily frustration about what women were having to endure. And so the idea came about to start the nonprofit, which uh, then we did in 2001. And so I took the first group of people, the, the first group of professionals um, to Turkey in 2004. So, I realized through my Fulbright experience that even as a foreigner that didn't speak the language, I could still make an impact. So I wanted to experiment a bit with that concept to see if other people given the same opportunity could also um, generate those same outcomes. And, you know, I didn't feel like there was anything that special about me. I just had a great opportunity and I wanted to be able to extend that to other people. So at that point in time, I took eight uh, colleagues from four different countries to Turkey, and we spread out in academic institutions across the country, and I'd become familiar with uh, many of those during my Fulbright. But 
we wanted to see what would happen. And it was pretty darn magical. And people had a great experience and the uh, host hospitals were so welcoming and wanted to learn. And really crazy things happened as a result of that that I didn't anticipate. So we ended up on the front page of a major national newspaper that has wow. a circulation of like 70 million people. Wow. So it was a little crazy because, you know, as a, as a fairly newlywed and um, being in Turkey and my in-laws were there, you know, they knew I was doing something medical and having some people <laughs> come over. But when they went down and picked up their uh, morning paper and boom, there we were, it was a little crazy. Wow, that's amazing. So, and then um, during that same trip, uh, we were um, in the Turkish Bazaar, which is a great experience. If anybody goes to Turkey to Istanbul, you've got to go to the bazaar. But we're in the bazaar and I get a um, call on my cell phone. And it's uh, one of the most famous reporters in Turkey named Ali Kurja. And they wanted to do a TV show uh, on primetime television in Turkey showing a C-section done under uh, regional anesthesia. Wow. So that became the very first televised birth ever shown in Turkey that, again, went across the country. This was national TV. So that whole thing that just um, spiraled in a crazy direction made me realize that, yes, ordinary doctors can make a huge impact. And two, even though we were dealing with a subspecialty such as obstetric anesthesia, it had relevance in the mainstream society. And that childbirth at large was a very important issue that needed um, broader recognition and broader discussion. So that experience um, from that very first trip really cemented in my mind the, the impact that we could have. Wow, that's excellent. Talk a little bit about, did you get some feedback from some of your colleagues who went on the trip and like what it was like to experience this sort of vicariously through them as potentially first timers who were, who were doing that abroad? Yeah, so most, most everyone continued to be involved and, um, and that helped, helped us on our next you know, tiers of programs to other countries too. So it was just a starting point and it really grew from there. And, and I think as we, as we started to dive into this, you know, we realized that, um, you know, childbirth mortality is a real problem uh, worldwide. And, and it actually, Cabela started, you know, really at the time that the uh, Millennium Development Goals were coming out, um, which have now transitioned to the Sustainable Development Goals. So world organizations, the WHO, uh, UNICEF, uh, World Bank, and others have really tried to promote the uh, the problem, highlight the problem, and then uh, work together um, in unity to try to address it. So, but even now, even currently, there's still 300,000 women that die worldwide having a baby. So, whereas we consider, you know, it's in your experience, you know, you don't expect to die having a baby in the United States. Fortunately, it does happen sometimes, but not often. And to most people, the childbirth is a, a joyous event, occasion that you look forward to, and there's a great uh, deal of happiness and excitement, and it's a, a remarkable experience. But in some countries, women dread going into the hospital to have a baby because 
it's very likely that they may not come out alive or their baby may not come out alive. And that's unfortunately the case for 300,000 women every year in the world. Yeah, that's very sobering to consider. And as you, you know, you started this work in Turkey, obviously this is a global uh, issue. Talk a little bit about how, and you guys are doing work all over the place now. Talk about how right. eventually the footprint expanded from Turkey to all the other places where you currently operate. Maybe talk a little bit about the places where you do currently operate. Well, I'll, I'll go back and address your first question. Sure. So from Turkey, uh, we had the opportunity to go and work in Croatia. And from there, we had the opportunity to work in the Republic of Georgia and Armenia, two former Soviet countries. And so that was all in a re relatively similar geographic area. And so problems there are a little different than problems in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. So in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East, the healthcare infrastructure is generally pretty good, but they lack subspecialty uh, knowledge in areas such as obstetric anesthesia. So things may be practiced as they were, you know, in the United States 50 years ago, for example. And so uh, that requires a different skill set than going and working in Sub-Saharan Africa. So of the 300,000 women that die each year having a baby, uh, roughly two thirds of them come from Sub-Saharan Africa. So then in 2003, when I had the opportunity to go and visit Ghana, which is in West Africa, you know, my eyes were, were opened even more broadly to um, the fact that you know, healthcare infrastructure is very challenging for a number of different reasons, but the, the, the key systems sometimes aren't even in place, such as having medical resources, space within hospitals, the, the necessary staff. So you've got to even just come back a step further. So even going in, into a hospital in West Africa, if you think you're going to just come in and teach someone how to do spinal anesthesia, you're not really addressing all the systems level problems that exist. So you've got to think about it completely differently. Makes sense. Okay. So I'm sure that you found in trying to expand, uh, you know, Cabela's, Cabela's mission that you ran into systems issues. You probably thought you were going to go in and teach people how to do epidurals or spinals. And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh my gosh, like, there's no, there's such administrative problems or systems problems or resource problems that it's actually more necessary to address those first. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think when we started to work in Ghana, I mean, my first experience there was was horrific. Um, I was in the capital city at a major, major teaching um, hospital, and I saw a woman die from an anesthesia-related error. And that was within my first uh, 20 minutes of going into the hospital. Oh, oh my gosh. It, it devastated me. And I think I had some PTSD um, regarding that for a while because, you know, I went in there as a visitor. I saw what was happening before my eyes. I didn't know what my role should be. They didn't know me. I didn't know what I should be able to jump in and to do. And it was an unsupervised anesthesiology resident who um, pulled out the intratracheal tube too soon. Wow. And uh, I said, the, um, 
your patient isn't breathing. And then she struggled to try to ventilate the patient and then failed to be able to reintubate her. And the lady started having an arrest. Meanwhile, the lady's newborn baby was over in the corner crying. And I thought, oh my goodness, that um, it, it was horrible. And we tried to find another attending. And anyway, the, the poor woman died again from a completely preventable mistake. And that baby will never have a mother. Oh my gosh. It's hard to imagine a more devastating 20 minutes. Yeah. And it was, and that wasn't the only thing I saw. And, and at that point I thought, um, Ghana is just, or West Africa or, or Africa in general is just off the, off the map. How can any one person come in or an organization come in and, and, um, address some of the, of the issues that exist. I really did not want to go back because it was so horrific. And I thought, you know, let's just continue to focus in the countries where we'd been. And, um, but then the, my key contact there was, was very persistent about having me come back. So I came back with two colleagues about a year later, and we had a completely different experience. And from that, the project started. So we've been working um, consistently in Ghana now since formally with a, with a, um, relationship with the government since 2006. And we've made a tremendous impact, but it's really been in partnership with the local community. And so when you ask, how do you start in that situation? I really had to take a step back and really ponder that, meditate on it, seek the counsel of some of the other colleagues that that went with me in those early days. And we decided that the best thing we could do is just listen. And, you know, labor epidurals were not a priority. So we, we gave up our own agenda and we, we listened to the colleagues there. And then we jointly came up with strategies that we felt could make improvements in the healthcare system. And we started with, with one. So our strategies in other countries had been to bring a team in and spread everybody out to go work in a number of different institutions. Well, that works fine if you're, if you're addressing you know, a single specialty like you know, anesthesiology, or even if you've got a few, if you bring a neonatologist along or an obstetrician. But to really understand the root, cause, root causes of why women and babies die in these hospitals, you've really got to go deep and wide. You can't just come in and just glaze the surface. It's not going to do anything. So then we, we decided that we would rather interview different facilities and find the one that we felt like we had the most, a greater sense of partnership with, and that we would, we would settle there and go deep and wide and really try to understand what was going on. And then that strategy uh, that it took several years to come together, uh, it's really impacted care. And it also allowed us to really more deeply understand the, the situation and the need and develop a model of care, which now through uh, funding, we're able to um, scale up to other facilities. So wow. we had to, we had to test and, and know what worked before, you know, we wanted to take that out. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like one of these things where there was a big, it was, it was difficult to, there was a lot of work required up front to be able to put in a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of time, probably before you saw any sustainable, tangible result. 
And it's not hard to imagine you could have gone into that hospital that first day in Ghana, 20 minutes in, you see this young mother, this brand new mother die on the table from an utterly preventable, you know, error. And imagine like you could have just <laughs> sort of been scared away or intimidated away and, and never have stuck around to do that hard work required. Uh, but because of the persistence, not only just in terms of time, but the humility to go in and say like, we have some expertise, but we don't presume to know exactly what you need. Your input here uh, is more valuable than what we have to bring. So tell us how we can help. And then we can collaborate to build some systems to improve things on a scalable level. That's, I mean, that's really, uh, it's really amazing and incredible. That's what's happened. Awesome. So talk a little bit about the process of once you identified that first partner institution, how was the process of, I guess, like getting to know them, getting to decide, okay, this is the place we're going to plant our flag, and then starting to do the work of communicating, building systems, training staff, and, and how did that all come about? Well, we, we found our local champion, and that is a person we felt like we could really resonate with, uh, who was a uh, fairly new to the hospital, an obstetrician, but with a think outside the box and I want to make improvements uh, mentality. So in any cultural context, and we've learned this over and over through the projects that we've conducted, that having a local champion on the ground is extremely important. And you can't not have that key collaborator that's a change agent in that, in that setting. So we identified that person and then we invited that person to come to the U.S. So they came to visit us in North Carolina. And my other key collaborator on this at the time was um, Dr. Yemi Olifulabi, who's a OB anesthesia faculty member at Duke. So he joined me on that early trip. So there was a nucleus of us that wanted to expose our, our Ghanaian obstetrician to the settings that we worked in. Because when you go in and start to describe things to people that have no concept of even what it is, it's like you're talking about something in outer space, you know? So he was able to come in and really quickly comprehend sort of a systems level mentality and understand what some of the key differences are. And, and then together, as we both understood each other's settings, we then created what we felt out of the combination of that uh, was the best set of, of ideas for what could potentially work in Ghana. So what we did is as, as a result of those visits, we created a 97 item quality improvement platform. Wow. So we divided those into three different pots of activities. So there were personnel, um, there were systems management issues, and then there were also quality and communications issues. So we had these 97 items spread out in these three areas. And we followed those items, the implementation of those items prospectively for five years. We did three visits a year, and we wanted to see if, if, we, if we completed those activities or, or tried to complete them, would that correlate with reductions of maternal and newborn death? So that's what we did. And so we forged ahead. And so Cabela, we came three times a year to work in that facility. 
and we, we brought new people along, but we also had a core group of people that were very intimately involved with this over the time and made multiple trips. And at that time, we didn't have any funding. So everybody was paying for their own airfares and the Ghana Health Service was also providing our accommodation. So it was really um, a cost-efficient partnership that actually bore tremendous results. Now, at the end of those five years, we implemented 68% of those items that were fully implemented. Wow. And that correlated with a significant decrease in maternal death. And we were able to estimate that we were, that we saved potentially 245 mothers Wow. and 129 stillbirths were prevented. Wow. And then because of the, um, the model and, and, and part of, of the way we grew as we went along, so we, we looked at the cost effectiveness of our work. It's, it's important when you do anything you have to be able to measure it. Mm-hmm. And is this making an impact? And is it cost effective? And we found that we were able to save those mothers um, for the cost of 158 US dollars per life year saved. Wow. And uh, now five years later, we looked at the same set of indicators, the same 97 items. And we found that actually 80% have been, had then been implemented. So even when we stepped away and we weren't doing anything in that, in that second five-year period, the activities not only were sustained, but more of the things on the list got accomplished. Wow. What a testament to the uh, amazing infrastructure that you helped to create. It would be easy to go in and do some things and then leave and have everything kind of fall apart. But the fact that you created momentum locally with those partnerships and, and then local Ghanaian physicians took it and ran with it is phenomenal. Well, just one of the 97 things alone was quite ambitious. So as we were getting into this, we realized that women that needed um, an emergency C-section, it was taking four hours Hmm. Wow! for that to happen. And, you know, here in the U.S., if it's a extreme like level one emergency C-section, you should have the baby out within 15 minutes. And then there's also an international guideline that's called the 30 minute rule that your goal is to have the baby delivered within 30 minutes. Well, the fact that it was taking four hours was problematic. So we needed to understand why is it taking four hours? And so two of the things that happened as a result of that revelation were um, there weren't enough anesthesia providers. And that was a huge, huge problem. So we actually started or uh, helped, we, we co-started with our Ghanaians, the third nurse anesthesia training program in Ghana. Wow. And um, that helped solve one of those problems. Um, and that program has been sustained and it's now just celebrated its 10th year. Oh, that's and great. not only has it expanded in terms of the number of providers being trained, but also um, pr- providers are coming in from other countries, such as the Doctors Without Borders program in West Africa are sending providers from other countries to our school, uh, in our hospital um, to train. So it's, that's just been um, so rewarding. And yeah. And so that was one of the 97 things. Yeah. No kidding. I'm, and, I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So they weren't just little things that we accomplished. Some of yeah. those things were big, big things just in and of themselves. They were wow. like projects within the project. Wow. So I'm curious, you know, of those 97 things in the beginning, you probably thought we're going to go in and we're going to do 
uh, OB anesthesia. And mm-hmm. I, when you made this 97 item list, probably the vast majority of them weren't even anesthesia specific, I would imagine. No. So, you know, little of what I do in Ghana is, is anesthesia focused. So now I'm really thinking about systems yeah. and about, you know, and you need to be able to deal with problems that start when the mother reaches the door pregnant and what happens to her over the course of hospitalization and not only just at birth, but you know, how long it takes to get the treatment that she needs, what happens at birth, what happens to the baby. And so it's the continuum of care that needs to happen across disciplines and across areas of the hospital that should be addressed. And I don't stop until the mother and the baby leave the hospital. So, and now we're, I'm even thinking about it even in a, in a more higher level in that we're now looking at referrals that come into those facilities. And we've, we've just done a, a study that's shown that uh, when a woman is referred from a district hospital to the, to the regional hospital, even in labor, it can take her hours to get there. Wow. And how would you like to be driving around town with the, pregnant, with the complication of pregnancy in labor in a taxi? So women, 80% of the women that arrive come by taxi because the ambulance service isn't, um, is inadequate for the need. So those are the issues that I'm, that I'm, that I stay up at night, wake up in the middle of the night thinking about, and wow. they're, they're big systems level problems. And they're problems that just aren't specific to Ghana. They're problems that exist all over Africa. And in many low and middle income countries. Was there ever a time that you uh, experienced either a unique setback in a certain place or maybe organizationally with Kybella where you thought this is this is a big, a big issue, a big problem, and either I'm not sure we can get through it or I'm not sure how we're gonna make it through? And uh, take me to that moment and kind of how how you work through those types of questions. Well, there have been a few of them, to be honest. Um, one of them was early on in our work in Ghana when I realized this wasn't going to be an easy fix. And I myself had just recently had a child. So my, my uh, daughter was born in 2002, just in the middle of all of this wow. stuff going on. So I had, I was lucky, as you were, to have one of those great childbirth experiences. And I was well supported and it was I would say hands down the best day of my life is the, the day that my daughter was born. And anyway, so I had a baby and I was 40 when I had her. So, and then three months into her life, she was diagnosed with a heart defect. So then we needed to be considering open heart surgery. So that was all happening in the background of the early days of Cabela. Wow. Yeah. And then um, we successfully got through the, the surgery when she was three. And that's when things were really heating up in Ghana. And I thought, you know, I'm coming here three times a year. I'm, my mind is constantly spiraling around, you know, what's going on in Africa. Um, and I remember one day I was in Ghana and I was talking to her on the phone and she was just tiny, just, you know, four or five years old. And I was feeling guilty for not being there with her. And I thought, man, I, just, I don't want to be an absentee mom. And my little girl, just as in the sweetest little voice said, mommy, 
I am so proud of you for being there and helping all those mommies and babies. And I realized, I, I thought, you know, she gets it and she's tiny and she gets it. She's not thinking about herself or her own satisfaction. And then through our work in Ghana, we've had an amazing opportunity um, when she got a little older, but I took her to Ghana for the first time when she was 10 years old. And now she's been eight times. And we've also been helping schools and orphanages. And I have um, developed this side project that helps inspire our youth to think outside of their box and to make a huge difference. And they're able to do that. Wow. So, yeah. So just having a, you know, I think I, I could have said, you know, no, I've got a child. I've, she's my priority and I can't come back anymore. But because my daughter was so giving and so loving, um, I was able to continue it on. Wow. I, uh, that's, that's incredible. What, a, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing story. What an amazing daughter, even as a, mm -hmm. a little four-year-old, what immense character yeah. and others centeredness she was able to display. Yeah. So yeah. it's clear that you've, you've had amazing support in your family, as you described with, yeah. with the physician from Duke, whom you partnered with early on. I'm curious, were there others along the way who have kind of been instrumental in helping Kai Bella to, uh, you know, continue to take shape and ultimately take flight? Well, I was, I was thinking about that. And, and yes, there are a few people that have been really helpful to me. And it's, it's been hard because I never did have a mentor as some people would sort of think about that. But there were people that were in my life that helped me make key decisions at key times. So one of those people was uh, Dr. Jim Eisenach, who's a world famous um, pain researcher, was editor of anesthesiology for 10 years. And he's here at Wake Forest. And early on in my career, I loved the, the basic science work that I was doing. And then I started the global health work. And I realized that, you know, I came to this crossroads of I can't do both. So he was really helpful in, in helping me determine what I should do. And at that time, uh, there were a lot of people that are, you know, much smarter than me doing excellent basic science work. So I thought, you know, that field doesn't really need me. Whereas at that time, there were not a lot of people that were doing the global health work. And I thought I had a much greater opportunity to impact many more lives by doing that. So he was instrumental. Um, then I was really fortunate to meet a woman named Linda Combs. And so when Cabela was um, just getting, she was one of my initial um, founding board members. She's a woman that's an extremely powerful, smart woman who was a controller at the White House at the wow. peak of her career. And um, She's just got a lot of great connections, a lot of wisdom on how you just go from being a local citizen to being able to um, inspire change within yourself and within others. And then another key person was Dr. Frank James, who uh, is another giant in the field of anesthesiology, who was um, the chair at the Department um, of Anesthesia at Wake Forest when I came on faculty. He was also one of my original board members, but he and his family foundation have uh, supported Cabela financially through their foundation uh, for a number of years as we were just getting off the ground. 
And he's been there as a friend and as a mentor throughout all of this. So I've been really lucky to have those people that have been the wind beneath my wing, so to speak. Oh, that's great. Uh, wow. This is this is has been a really excellent discussion. I appreciate your time today, Madge. I want to wrap it up here in just a couple minutes. I'm sure there's people listening right now that think, this sounds amazing. I love the work that's happening. I love how impactful it is. I love the even the being able to quantify in like a dollars per unit of impact, uh, how diligently you guys have documented that. I'm sure people want to get involved or want to learn more. So uh, where should they go? What and, and how can they help? Well, they can help in a few ways. There's a, a website, www.cabelaworldwide.org. And you could go on the website and learn about the projects that we're uh, conducting worldwide, some of our publications, a little bit more about the organization, and also how to donate if you feel so inclined to want to be a part of this. So hopefully, as I've demonstrated, the work we do is extremely cost-effective and impactful, and that's helpful. And we always um, bring new people on board. And and again, I think hopefully I've, I've shown that ordinary people can make a tremendous impact. Yeah. So there's, there are ways uh, that people can participate as well. Awesome. So we'll link to this in the show notes. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 45. We'll have links to uh, the Kybella website as well as any other uh, details that Medge wants to pass along after this interview. So make sure and check that out. Great. Um, so in closing, uh, I want to just close with a personal story from you, Madge, about, I mean, you, th- this has been, I think, I, I feel like every time I have one of these conversations, it's utterly humbling. And again, I'm like, this is the best one of these that I've done. <laughs> this is definitely in that category where uh, there's, there's such impact, such intimate impact in people's lives. I mean, I just think that story in the, the hospital, your first moment in Ghana, that's just... I mean, as a new dad, that's just utterly devastating. And I can't imagine how many, there, there's been so many stories like that that you have prevented and created systems and like rubber stamping all over the place to be able to replicate that impact. So t- tell me about a moment when, you know, you were, you've been putting in the time and putting in all the effort and marshalling all these resources elsewhere to be able to make an impact. And whether it's a patient story or an interaction with a local medical faculty where you thought, you know what, in this moment, this has been something that I'm able to finally see some of the fruit of all of the the effort that we've put in. I would say that happened just fairly recently. Uh, We've been taking our work and we've been applying for grants. So there's a, a granting entity called Saving Lives at Birth. It's extremely competitive. And um, it's, it was started by the Bill Gates Foundation and other, other partners such as um, Grand Challenges Canada. There's a, an organization called DFID in England, um, the South Korean government. So they all, all these national entities got together and, and um, have started the Saving Lives at Birth program. So we applied two years ago to that. And I learned that there were 500 applications and they only gave three awards and Cabela was one of them. Wow. And Cabela is a tiny organization and we were up against huge institutions, huge global health um, entities within major academic medical centers. 
and here we were. And I, I just remember being up on the stage and as one of the 10 finalists. And even I said, even if it doesn't go further than this, we've arrived. Wow. And then we've, uh, we're in the middle of that project now in Ghana. But um, that was when I realized that the work that we've done is able to really um, turn some heads. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that awesome achievement and all of the work that you're doing. I mean, it's just really a testament to your your persistence, your perseverance in the face of hardship, your, uh, I mean, it's, and your heart, like you just care about people and you want to impact them in such a deep and significant way and give so much of yourself in the process. So it's been a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you. And uh, thank you for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.